0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: On this episode of Conspiracy Unlimited, the murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's secret Cold War experiments.
2: People were given LSD. When that didn't work, they were given morphine. When that didn't work, they were given heroin. When that didn't work, they were given stimulants. They were given Demerol. And there's no chance whatsoever that anybody could survive that kind of aggressive interrogation. What was going on is the the agency was just basically out of control.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Bright Biz. If you own a business or you've dreamed of starting one, there's a helpful free guide with 36 business power tools proven to boost sales, increase income, simplify your life, and give you better results with less effort. Best of all, this business toolbox is yours absolutely free, and these are useful online tools that make doing almost anything a lot easier. Just visit freebusinesstoolbox.com and grab your free copy. I know there are a lot of websites out there that offer you a special deal on something, and then they make stick you in some annoying recurring program, but this isn't like that. There's no hidden thing to try. Bright Biz is giving away this guide free of charge as a means of putting their best foot forward. But all good things must come to an end, so don't wait. Grab your free guide today. Visit FreeBusinessToolbox.com. FreeBusinessToolbox.com.
0: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres.
1: Good to be back with you after a week off to catch my breath and put my feet up, but it is very gratifying to know so many of you missed me, missed having new episodes last week, Uh, but I am back, and to make up for lost episodes, this episode you're going to find it's a little beefier, a little longer, but I think you'll uh, understand why in a moment. Beefier, yes, but also dark. Uh, In 1953... Frank Olson, a scientist working for the CIA, died when he fell from a 13th floor window of the Hotel Statler on 7th Avenue in what was originally ruled a suicide. Uh, The mystery surrounding Olson's death involved secret CIA experiments with LSD and mind control. At the time of his death, Frank Olson was a bacteriologist and a biological warfare scientist working for the CIA. Nine days before his fatal plunge, Olson's supervisor spiked his drink with LSD. The initial police report, as I say, pronounced Olson's death a suicide, but lingering questions remained. In 1975, the Olson family received a wrongful death settlement and an apology from President Gerald Ford. So, on this episode, we're going to probe the events surrounding Olson's fate and the government's decades-long cover-up. Hank Elberelli is a writer and investigative journalist who lives in Vermont, Florida, and London. He's written numerous feature articles about the 9-11 anthrax attacks, biological warfare, the American intelligence community, the death of Frank Olson, the Cuban Revolution, and social and political affairs. Some of his work can be found at World Net Daily, Counterpunch, and Crime Magazine, as well as numerous magazines and newspapers. He's the author of A Terrible Mistake, The Murder of Frank Olson, and the CIA's secret Cold War experiments. Hank Alborelli, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
2: i'm very good, thank you for having me having me on board.
1: This is a dark chapter in American history, but for those who don 't know who Frank olson was i mean he how did this bacteriologist, which is kind of an interesting field of uh, of work, how did this bacteriologist get involved in the CIA
2: well it it 's really not too complicated a story it uh, His work with the CIA was actually probably the first professional job he had uh, out of college. He had a Ph.D. in microbiology, uh, had grown up in Wisconsin, gone to school in Wisconsin, uh, and then the Second World War broke out, and he and his his wife had driven across the country uh, and to Fort Detrick, Maryland, in Frederick, Frederick Maryland where he had been hired or solicited by his former thesis director uh, at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, And his thesis director, uh, Dr. Baldwin, had been charged with actually putting together uh, Fort Dietrich's uh, chemical and biological warfare uh, division. And one of the first people uh, Baldwin reached out for was was Frank Olson because Olson had had graduated with his Ph.D. maybe I think uh, 19 months earlier, uh, and so uh, Olson was I think one of five people uh, who were who were initially uh, uh, drawn together by Baldwin. Eventually, Fort Dietrich. Rose to employ, I think during the war, about seven thousand people uh, in various divisions. and most of the work they they accomplished was was uh, very, very secret.
1: I would imagine during the second World War and then later during the Cold War. Uh, organizations like the CIA would have been lined up waiting for graduates it 's not like today where graduates are hungry looking for work they were they were waiting for them and and uh, there were lots of jobs particularly during the cold War so as part of the u s Army biological warfare laboratories what what sort of things was Olson working on at at Camp Dietrich
2: well, again, most most of his work was secret. Uh, it, around mid nineteen fifty, the CIA had just been formed. It, it had grown out of the OSS, uh, which had been basically retired by President Truman, uh, and then the CIA replaced it. And the CIA naturally had a, a strong interest in in chemical and biological weapons. Most of that interest was triggered by uh, documents and and papers that had been captured from the Nazis. Uh, And during the late 40s, the CIA, as it was formed, spent a considerable amount of time uh, going through those documents. And naturally, as a result, uh, the agency wanted to form its own biological and, and chemical warfare division Rather than doing that, uh, such a division had already been formed at, at uh, Camp Dietrich. It was called Camp Dietrich initially. And so what the CIA did was contract uh, with Camp Dietrich, and the contract uh, with the camp was specifically with uh, uh, the Special Operations Division at uh, Camp Dietrich. And that was the most secret division at Dietrich and that division was charged with coming up with new compounds, new new weapons, uh, biological and chemical weapons for both offensive and defensive purposes. And That was a small division uh, and second in charge initially in that division was Frank Olson. And
1: these are weapons that could be transmitted through the air primarily, correct?
2: Uh, th- Primarily at that time, yes, through the air, uh, the the level of sophistication hadn't grown that that largely at that point in time. but uh, the the activities were really accelerated. So initially through aerosol delivery or delivery through the air, through planes or or bombs, but eventually within about fourteen months, uh there's a concentrated effort to to uh, look at all forms of delivery and including uh man-on-man delivery man-on-man uh and those as could be assumed were, were assassination directed uh programs
1: at some point he he travels to these various research sites in places like Norway and France and West mm-hmm. Germany Port and down which is a British government facility in Wiltshire. What what does he witness there?
2: Well, most of his travels initially w- were to Port and Down, which was the the British counterpart uh, to Camp Dietrich. Uh, at at Porton Down, he doesn't he doesn't witness anything shocking. It's mostly uh, parallel research to 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 what Dietrich was doing, uh, carried out by the British in. There's been a lot of reports uh, about his witnessing a number of what would have been termed terminal experiments uh, that were conducted uh, in Germany, uh, post-war Germany, uh, around Frankfurt, Nuremberg, in various uh, CIA safe houses. And in a nutshell, what was going on at that time was there was a, a wide variety of experimentation that was being carried forward by the uh, CIA in the area of an interrogation and there were large numbers of, of former Nazis or actually post-war Nazis who are still quite active and Russians uh, Russian Rus- Rus- Russian Russian agents and double agents because of uh, the post the uh, Cold War was just blossoming uh, and a lot of these people who were captured uh, obviously uh, possessed a lot of knowledge, and the, the agency wanted that knowledge, and these people were extremely reluctant to talk. So there was a large amount of experimentation that was going on and focused on interrogation, loosening tongues or, and minds, uh, and a large number, large array of, of drugs and and semi-torture methods uh, were employed by the uh, by the CIA, and there's been a lot of claims. Uh, nothing's, nothing's ever been solidly verified that Olson uh, witnessed a number of those interrogations. Uh, and judging by his ta- travel records, I would guess that he probably did find himself in a number of those situations once or twice, but I don't think his exposure... Uh, initially was was that extensive. Olson was primarily a work bre- a workbench uh, scientist uh, which uh, for the first two years while he was at Dietrich means basically that he he conducted all his research uh, within within his his home base uh, starting around late nineteen fifty two he traveled he started to travel a little more extensively and he did go to germany he went to norway went to sweden and again a lot of that that travel was related to uh various cia uh, uh activities were that that were being conducted in those countries um uh, and he went to france uh several times and and there was one project, a highly secret project, that was conducted in France. And Is, that was an operational program.
1: Was that Pont Saint-Esprit, uh, the, uh, the, that where the, the Pont bread, Saint, yeah.
2: bread yeah, was yeah, the laced with LSD? Yes, and and uh, it, it's interesting. It's, it's ironic in a lot of ways. In, initially, the U.S. Army, around 1950, actually ni- late 1949, became aware of... Uh, the product LSD through the Sandoz Chemical Company in in Basel, Switzerland, and and the Army's interest, uh, believe it or not, was to use LSD as a as a nonviolent or lethal weapon. Uh, the thinking generally revolved around uh, aerosol delivery of LSD. Where LSD would be sprayed, widely sprayed on enemy troops, which would result in uh, disabling those troops uh, mentally and, and to a large extent physically, but not killing them. Right. Uh,
1: I guess they'd put down their <laughs> weapons and pick up a sitar and. <laughs> yes,
2: <yeah, something>. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and the Army was extremely interested uh, in going that route. And there's a number of papers. Uh, that were written that that I was able on Earth through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, and the, uh, several of the the final papers that were developed in that vein recommended, highly recommended, that uh, while the use of LSD looked extremely attractive, uh, there had to be there had to be operations conducted in the field that would that could uh, recreate actual uh, uh, wartime uh, situations uh, with populations of people that, that were similar to uh, uh, soldiers.
1: So why did Either, they pick this and, tiny? Why did they pick this tiny village of Pont Saint Esprit in in, in 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 France?
2: Uh, that's a very good question. That's been posed a lot. Uh, that they picked it, there's no doubt. Uh, the, the the theory is, and it's I think it's a little more than a theory, was that they didn't want to do it in the United States. They had conducted a lot of a lot of experiments on their own troops, but but those those experiments uh, they were created. It wasn't really a a real world situation, and they didn't want to use uh, an american town uh they didn't want to they didn't want to uh, basically attack their own people uh, and somehow the name of Pont Pont saint esprit came up uh, the theories and and they're beyond a theory in a lot of ways was that the town. Was considered to be uh, fairly red at that point in time. In in other words, they leaned towards uh, towards uh, the communist uh, or or communist uh, political persuasions. They weren't communist. so somebody made the brilliant decision of uh, well, let's pick this small town. It's it's in southern France. It's out of the way. It's easily accessible. It's very close, very close to Basel, Switzerland, which was where Sandoz was located, and at the time they they were the only producer of LSD in the world.
1: Uh, but they didn't aerosol and, uh, it. Uh, they they put it in the bread, right?
2: They put it in the bread. It was not delivered. It's it's been reported fairly widely when my book first came out that that it was delivered. Uh, delivered through the air, but that's not true. Uh, it was it was much more, the delivery mechanism was much more crude, but much more effective. And what they did, uh, what, what, bread was a staple at that point in time, and bread was delivered much like milk was in North America in the 1950s to your doorstep. Uh, and what they did is they went to the, the bakery, which was about 30 miles from Pont-Saint-Esprit and actually poured liquid LSD and it came in liquid form at that point in time. So it was quite easy to do that onto the bread, let it saturate the be- bread a little bit. And within an hour it was delivered to Pont-Saint-Esprit and so just exposure to the air would dry it out, and there wouldn't be any visible signs of uh, the contamination because LSD uh, then is now is colorless and and has no taste whatsoever. I guess there are about uh, 200,
1: 250 people affected, and a number of.
2: About, yeah, about 500, actually. Ah,
1: okay. A number uh, of people front, were sent to asylums, yeah. and there were. How many yeah, there deaths? Were,
2: there were approximately 50 to 60 people that were actually carted off to various asylums. They were all released within three or four months, but there were five deaths. All those deaths, maybe one or two were accidents. It's really hard to determine at this point in time, but three of them at least were suicides where people uh, people went up to the, the roofs of barns thinking they could fly, uh, and of course they couldn't. And at least one was an actual suicide where someone just uh couldn't handle the effects of the drug. there were five hundred people that that were contaminated with the drug, and nobody nobody had any clue what was going on it's so unconscionable it's
1: really unconscionable
2: yeah it's i mean everybody was unwitting um, and and it was just you can imagine what it looked like and there were a number of American publications i think Time magazine and life magazine. Uh, covered it after the fact, but wrote pretty, pretty graphic accounts of of actually how horrible it was.
1: Did, was there any? They, was there ever any official acknowledgement, or did they was this sort of explained away? I think they call this ergo poisoning. Uh, you yeah, know, ergot poisoning. Ergot poisoning.
2: There, yeah, there is a natural occurrence that happens in bread that's infected uh, rye bread that's in, infected by rye yeast, and that had happened, oh, about two or three hundred years prior to that, uh, several times in Europe. But the the sophistication level of bread baking had far surpassed that. But what happened, uh, and it's really a pretty interesting story, is that, uh, of course, the French were very concerned about what was occurring in the village and. And concerned you know was it going to happen again and if it's going to happen again how do we stop it so lo and behold the French uh, called on scientists at the near nearby Sandoz chemical company Uh, and Sandoz dispatched two or three scientists one of whom was uh, a doctor whose name was Albert Hoffman who actually was the inventor of LSD along with a couple other people they came to Pont Saint-Esprit within 48 hours of, of the outbreak. Uh, and of course, they knew, they were well aware of LSD and its, its effects, and had experimented fairly widely among the patient population at a number of asylums nearby Basel, Switzerland. So they, they knew exactly what had happened uh, at Pont-Saint-Esprit. In fact, they supplied uh, the liquid LSD to the US Army. Uh, but uh, LSD was never mentioned uh, whatsoever during during their review and study of what had happened. And they said, yeah, it's, it's ergot poisoning. And when that was challenged pretty aggressively, uh by a number of people over the following weeks and months. They changed their story and said, Well, it seems to be mercury poisoning. Mm. Maybe the water that was used in in making the bread was contaminated with mercury, but you just don't have a an outbreak like uh like like you had a post Saint Esprit from from mercury poisoning at all. But again, L S D was never mentioned. Uh and with time, within two or three years, uh things just, you know, went away. Nobody paid attention to it, never happened again. There is evidence that it did happen again in that the the army again the US army again was behind it in a small town in Turkey. But that's still being researched and they've been looking into that for about two or three years and that there was an outbreak in Turkey is is has been documented. But there's, there's a lot more research that has to go along with it.
1: Hank Alborelli is here, the author of The Murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments. And I wanted to point out that uh, for my Canadian listeners, uh, if you want to get a hold of this uh, book, it's available as a hardcover at chapters. Uh, again, The Murder of Frank Olson by Hank Alborelli, available at uh, chapters and there 's a special deal happening right now. normally, this book would cost you thirty seven ninety five and it 's now available for just twenty four ninety five that 's quite a savings again that 's at chapters in Canada. Uh, the hardcover normally thirty seven ninety five now for twenty four ninety five all right, Hank, sorry, you were talking about uh, other examples of of uh, the CIA uh, dosing unwitting right. populations.
2: Right that happened there is evidence that it happened in turkey but but that's still under uh intense study i, I just to piggyback on your uh your remarks about the book uh, just remind possible readers it's a it's a very large book. it's almost nine hundred pages uh there are a fair amount of photographs in it, but uh more importantly, there's a lot of documents that are reproduced, and there's a number of CIA documents. Uh, documenting conversations that went on be, between Sandoz chemical company officials and the CIA, uh, where it was exposed internally that, that it was not an ear got outbreak at post St. Esprit, but but that it was an, actually an experiment. But now, of course they didn't want that revealed.
1: So Frank Olson, was he aware of, of that as well? Uh, did he know? He what was happened? there. He was there.
2: He, he was actually there along with uh, about six or seven other uh, uh, Camp Dietrich employees So, um, was who, this... were, who were also members of the United States Army.
1: So did he – also it's been uh, alleged – by i guess you know his son eric and other members of the family who have Mm -hmm. sued the u.s government and we'll get into why uh, later but they uh, allege that he witnessed that frank olson witnessed uh during interrogations uh individuals being murdered with some of these agents that he helped develop biological agents Is, is there any truth to that
2: well, there there seems to be that there were there were captured agents and double agents uh, that actually d- d- died as a result of experimentation uh, or or aggressive ex- a- 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 aggressive interrogation that was going on. There's no doubt about that. As a matter of fact, the CIA uh, started calling. That those experiments and they were operational experiments, uh, terminal experiments, meaning that the expectation was that if the person didn't talk, that they wouldn't be able to survive the onslaught of of drugs and chemicals uh, that were used against them. It wasn't. Uh, we we have documentation of uh, a number of these interrogation sessions. Uh, that were carried out where people did did die and the 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 variation of drugs that were given to them over a period of 3 or 4 days is is just unbelievable. I mean people were given LSD, when that didn't work they were given morphine, when that didn't work they were given heroin, when that didn't work they were given stimulants, they were given Demerol, mm. they were given various uh, various amphetamine compounds. Uh, and there's no chance whatsoever that anybody could survive uh, that kind of aggressive, aggressive uh, interrogation. And what was going on is the, the agency was just basically out of control and trying everything under the sun with no concern whatsoever to the well-being of, of the subject. So did people die? Yeah, a large number of people died.
1: Was Olson Olson also involved in experiments with aerosolized anthrax?
2: There are reports that he was. He, he was. It, it's better document that we, he was involved in the aerosol delivery of, of various other compounds. Uh, he was on board a U.S. Navy craft uh, in nineteen fifty. Uh, no, ni- nineteen fifty-one. That. Uh, was conducting experiments off the coast of San Francisco. And at that point in time, they were using a compound that was virtually unknown, but according to the, the Army and the Navy, it was not harmful uh, to human beings. Yet a number of about five or six people did die in uh, San Francisco hospitals, about uh, two or three weeks after this experiment, and doctors were completely baffled because they'd never, they'd never, uh, they'd never encountered the compound before, and they had no idea whatsoever how people were exposed to it. And of course, the the Navy and the Army never came forward and said, you know, by the way, we were we were testing with this and through aerosol means uh, at the time. So it took about forty years for that to to that for that to be exposed
1: the cia involved in deception and subterfuge go figure you know who will never lie to you never let you down your dog you know your dog does so much for you here's something you can do for your dog and also for yourself unlock your dog's hidden intelligence and that will allow you to eliminate bad behavior and create the obedient, well-behaved pet of your dreams. There's a woman named Adrian Feracelli. She's a professional, certified dog trainer and she's helped hundreds of dog owners train their dogs to be well-behaved, obedient, loving pets. By bringing out the hidden intelligence inside all dogs, you can quickly eliminate any behavioral problems your dog has, no matter how badly you think it's ingrained, no matter what kind of dog you have. The science behind and this is simple. You may have heard of neuroplasticity in the human brain. That's what allows our brains to learn new behaviors. Well, your dog's brain has the same plasticity. And with the right mental stimulation that Adrian teaches, any dog's brain will become more open and receptive to learning new information. Your dog will listen to you and understand what you want it to do. And when this happens, bad behaviors simply fade away as more desirable ones appear in their place. So if you want to check out this remarkable dog training system just visit realbusinessbargains.com that's realbusinessbargains.com realbusinessbargains.com
0: the truth goes through three stages first it is ridiculed then it is violently opposed Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
1: Hank Elberelli is here. We're talking about the murder of CIA scientist Frank Olson back in 1953. So here we have Frank Olson, a good Midwestern boy from Wisconsin, a family man. He's witnessing all of these things. And, uh, you know, he's he believes he's serving his country, but then he's Witnessing these dark episodes, obviously this is weighing heavily on his conscience uh, mm-hmm. does he make does he make it known at some point that he's going to spill the beans?
2: right well what happened and and it's sketchy but it's it's well documented to the point where we know uh, what triggered his his death and his being targeted himself he, he wanted to leave. Uh, work at Camp Dietrich, and and believe it or not, he wanted to reschool himself as a dentist and go into the private sector and uh, just become a dentist, as one of his sons did uh, about thirty years later. But of course, uh, the army and the CIA had other, other thoughts, and they they didn't want him to leave. He he simply knew way too much, uh, and and. They did everything they could to talk him out of it, but Frank was a, a fairly cocky guy, and he he could be fairly aggressive uh, at the same time. And he made a number of threats to people he he rode to work with, neighbors who were also colleagues at Fort Detrick, and said, you know, if he if he didn't get his way, that that he could you know open up and maybe talk to various people about what happened in various locations, including post-Saint-Esprit. And that, that alone would have been disastrous. Uh, I mean, you could, you could look at what's going on today in terms of the use of biological and chemical drugs and, uh, vis-a-vis the Russians and the British and the Americans. And, and think of 1953. If the Russians had gotten wind that the American army Had experimented on a large number of french citizens with lsd uh, causing a large number of people to go crazy or kill themselves it would have just been a disaster diplomatically and politically uh and so word came down look everything has to be done that's possible to shut this guy up and what they did was they sent him in new york they sent him to new york with a couple cia people to consult uh, a doctor who, who had some credentials. He was a medical doctor, but he had some credentials uh, with psychology. And more importantly, he knew, he had been involved in early experiments with LSD and had actually worked with Frank during the war uh, in conducting aerosol delivery of, of other drugs. And this was Dr. Harold Abramson, who was a fairly prominent doctor in New York City at the time. Abramson recommended to Olson that that he allow the CIA to check him into a facility in Rockville, Maryland, not far from the CIA, called Chestnut Lodge. And that was a facility that at that time that was used for high-level CIA officials who were exper- who were experiencing uh, psychological problems, people who had nervous breakdowns, and and there was a lot of that at that point in time. Olson didn't want to go, and he was probably wise to have that reaction because my guess is that uh, if he had gone there, he there's a good chance he would have never come back. Uh, he he would have either committed suicide or or somebody would have acted against him in that regard, because I don't think he was going to back off for his, from his desire to to leave Camp Dietrich. Uh, but anyway, uh, what happened in New York after Abinson, uh, recommend recommended this is Olsen tried to escape a couple times. He really wasn't being confined in New York, but he was he was being guarded fairly closely by a number of uh, CIA people and CIA contractors. Uh, and both times he tried to escape. He was brought back. These instances occurred in the middle of the night. And then on the evening of the November 28th, uh, the decision was made. Uh, early in the night to wait for Olson to go to sleep, and then they were going to they were going to have two individuals actually take him out of the room uh, and then transport him to Chestnut Lodge in Rockville, Maryland, uh, forcibly, and, and and check him into uh, to the facility. But Olson resisted, as you know, as a lot of people could expect. And what resulted uh, was that he was thrown through the window and fell about 130 feet to his death on the sidewalk below. The two people that had been hired or contracted to, 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 to take him to, uh, to Rockville, Maryland were, it's interesting, were both Frenchmen who were wanted in absentia for, for collaboration uh, with the Nazis during the war, and they were also uh, well-known drug traffickers. One of them, whose name was uh, Francois Spiritu, is actually credited uh, with uh, with refining heroin trafficking to the point where he is now known today as the father the father of modern heroin trafficking. And the other person was a man called. Pierre Lafitte. That's obviously a, uh, an alias. Uh, he was also a drug trafficker and and a Nazi collaborator during the war. But he was also a CIA asset and consultant who who worked under cover of the Federal Narcotics Bureau.
1: Now this was at the. So he he had, was, this happened at the Statler Hotel.
2: At this the, happened at the Statler Hotel. Right. That's correct. Now New I York hadn't really,
1: I hadn't realized that's actually today. That's the Pennsylvania Hotel where I've stayed.
2: That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's right across the street from Madison Square Garden. Yes, I stayed Literally, there. Literally across the street. I had yeah.
1: a, a, a little tiny room with a with a, uh, mm-hmm. a radiator that mm-hmm. hissed all night. Didn't get any sleep. <laughs> anyway, yeah. another story. But.
2: But def- at, at that point in time in nineteen fifty three it was a highly respected uh, hotel mm-hmm. uh and uh you know very high cost. Today it's it's middle of the road, it's one of the cheaper places. Sure. That's why I stayed stay there, Hank. <laughs> that's, but, why uh, I, that's why that's yeah, why I stayed there. Yeah, I could afford I, it. I've stayed there myself. But before uh, the Statler,
1: home. before he's taken to the Statler, mm-hmm. he's they had taken him to Deep Deep Creek Lake, right? Where and that's is that where they that's do- correct. That's he, where they dosed him.
2: Yeah, about nine days before he went to the Statler in New York City, uh, he attended what was called a work session at at a remote area in in Maryland, Deep Creek Lake, which is very, very rural, remains very rural today. There was a a fairly good-sized log cabin that the CIA used extensively for secret meetings. It wasn't just this one meeting. And what happened at at that uh at that meeting uh was that uh, the agency had decided, okay, we need to do a hard assessment on how damaging Olson could really be if if he were to talk openly, maybe go to the press or go to whomever uh, and ironically, they dosed him with l s d and put him through. A fairly minor interrogation, uh, but they concluded through that interrogation that uh, he could be extremely damaging. Uh, Olsen didn't hold anything back, and he kind of mocked them during the uh, during the whole experience. And that's where it was decided, okay, we need to take him to New York, and we need a good, fast and firm recommendation as to what to do with him. There was no – there wasn't any consideration at that time uh, given to killing him. But but I don't think there was any doubt whatsoever that that was in the back of a lot of people's minds. Again, politically and diplomatically, his talking out of school could have just been uh, – the damage could be immeasurable. Uh, so, And that's what happened at Deep Creek Lake.
1: So it was claimed that uh... – that he jumped out the window at the Statler Hotel on November 28th and obviously died as a result of the fall. Right. But later in the 70s, they admitted that they had dosed him, correct? The CIA had dosed him. They admitted that. Yeah, in
2: 1975, as a result of the Rockefeller Commission, uh, which had been composed by President Gerald Ford to, to study CIA abuses, uh, they inadvertently, it seems to be inadvertent, mentioned in their report without naming Olson that one of the abuses that had occurred was in 1953 when the CIA had dosed uh, one of their scientists and that scientist, uh, nine days later, had committed suicide. And, of course, when that report was released publicly, uh, the Olson family saw it within days. It was in every major newspaper and they knew they knew that was Frank Olson. Their, you know, the, their husband, their father, uh, whatever, and and as a result of that, uh, the Olson's uh, were actually called to the White House, and and Gerald Ford said, uh, "I've arranged for you to meet with William Colby, who at that point in time was head of the CIA, and and he'll reveal everything." Unfortunately, Colby did not reveal everything. He gave them about 100 pages of secret CIA documents, but the key pages among, among that, uh, what's come to be known as the Colby documents, were heavily, heavily redacted and revolved around a secret project called the Artichoke. Uh, and that was, the, that was a project, actually, that resulted in Olson's death so
1: the idea was that uh, they admitted that they dosed him, but they stood by their claim that he committed suicide. Absolutely. Uh, but, then, Absolutely. but then, at a, I guess in 96, the family mm-hmm. decided to have his body exhumed so he could be buried next to his wife, and they took That's that correct. opportunity to have a second autopsy. What did they find?
2: Well, the uh, they had, that's that's exactly right. They they had the body exhumed and they conducted a second autopsy. They didn't they didn't find a whole lot. The the primary thing they found was that he had a hematoma on the right side of his head that that uh, they concluded meant that he had been struck uh, uh, quite hard with a lot of force uh, in his skull, and that probably occurred right before he was thrown through the window and was was resisting uh being forcibly removed from the hotel
1: how could they how could uh, forty three years after his death when they do this autopsy how can they determine whether that hematoma that that blunt trauma to the head occurred yeah. before or after
2: that's a that's a that's an interesting that's a damn good question and and the answer is pretty simple and so Olson's body had, had been handled by an expert uh, undertaker uh, who, had, who had done everything right, exactly right, uh, both in New York and in Frederick, Maryland. And when they exhumed his body, uh, they found him to be remarkably well preserved. Uh, and, and it looked I mean, it really, there was Frank Olson. His skin had turned black, but he still had skin. On his body, and and the signs of the hematoma were very very visible, and normally there'd be in in normal situation there'd be a large, a large amount of, of decomposition, and 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 you know you wouldn't have you wouldn't have a a, a person that you could could find do that, those kind of scientific findings on, and, and the Olsons were extremely lucky in that regard, but of course that didn't. You know that that certainly pointed towards foul play, but it didn't it didn't give the circumstances or any of the individuals involved. And the CIA has steadfastly refused to move off from the uh, the suicide account, even today.
1: It's interesting, though, that I, I believe uh, there was a, a wrongful death suit uh,
0: filed. There was
2: there were. There were two or three. Uh, the initial filing was in 1976, the year after uh, the dosing at Deep Creek Lake was exposed through the through the Rockefeller Commission, and uh, and and as a result of the Olson's going to visit with Gerald Ford, uh, they were given seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It was initially supposed to be a million, but it was reduced by Congress because it had to be approved by the U.S. Congress. Uh, but $750,000 in 1975 was a pretty good chunk of change. And unfortunately, the Olsons accepted that. Uh, and when you when you receive that kind of wrongful death award, uh, you have to sign a slew of papers that basically state, we will never sue again, we will never bring... Any further action uh, concerning concerning this incident, unless we can directly definitively prove fraud uh, and we all since have been on, unable to do that. Uh, Here's a,
1: I just wanted to crib here because, as you say, in 2012, 2013, uh, right. sons Erica Nils filed suit in the U.S. District Court in Washington. And right. here's what the U.S. District Judge James Bosberg wrote in his decision. Mm-hmm. While the court must limit its analysis to the four corners of the complaint, the skeptical reader may wish to know that the public record supports many of the allegations in the family's suit, far-fetched as they may sound. That's pretty damning.
2: That it is, That's extremely damning. But, but again, it, it doesn't allow them to sue. Uh, and their suit, their suit was intended to be fairly, uh, fairly substantial. They were suing uh, for $50 million. And, and that's, uh, that's a large claim. Nobody has ever sued the U S government for that successfully sued the U S government for that much money. In this case, it, you know, ideally it should have happened, but, but it didn't. Uh, and, and, even though i mean i've researched the case for 10 years uh, nobody knew anything about pierre lafitte or france francois spiritu at that point in time nobody knew any of the facts around the the recommendation that harold abramson had made uh, and a number of the people i i interviewed unfortunately they're all dead now because i wrote the book almost 15 years ago, and most of these people were in their 80s at the time I was interviewing them, people did reluct- reluctantly admit that they had, they had gone to Paul Saint-Esprit with Frank Olson, that experiments had been conducted. Indeed, eventually it was revealed that, that the U.S. Army had unwittingly dosed over 7,000 enlisted men at Edgewood Arsenal with LSD, after the Olson death had occurred, uh, so the the Olson death certainly didn't put the brakes on any experimentation, uh, and the Pentagon conducted a study on that massive amount of onwooding experimentation that went on, and found that there was an extraordinary amount of of suicides and violence as a result of that experimentation. And when that initially became known, uh, they they just clamped down on that study and and closed the doors.
1: Hank Albarelli, the author of *A Terrible Mistake: The Murder of Frank Olson* and the CIA's Secret Cold War Experiments, and again, I want to point out, available at Chapters in Canada as a hardcover. Now, big savings! This is a huge book, 900 plus pages. Normally sells for 37.95. Now on special. Twenty-four ninety-five, and uh, for uh, Hank, we should also point out a couple of uh, documentaries if people want to, uh, w- you know, learn more. Uh, there's the um, the Netflix documentary series called mm-hmm. Wormwood, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, an, an episode on Frank Olson on Wormwood. Is that Errol Morris's project or Seymour? Yeah, that's,
2: that's yeah. Errol Morris's project. It's yeah. actually, I think, a seven or eight episode. Production documentary, and then there's another very recent one that was uh, that was shown initially shown two weeks ago by the the Science Channel, Uh, and that was as part of a series called Deadly Intelligence, and that can be found anyone can watch that on their computer uh, by going to the Science Channel uh website or youtube i think it's on youtube but that that's an excellent production it's about a little over an hour long and it gives it gives all the highlights and in, in, in important data uh concerning the case and it has some some great visual uh visual graphic material and interviews so so there's a lot out there if pe- if people are interested.
1: Well, there's this is such a horrible – I was going to say a horrible chapter, uh, but that almost sounds like it's past tense. And that <laughs> leads to my final question, yeah. which, which is, uh, do you – has the CIA in your mind – I'm asking you to speculate or perhaps mm-hmm. not – has the CIA reformed itself?
2: No. No, not at all. Uh, LSD is still widely used for for interrogation. And interrogation harassment, uh, purposes, uh, and there recently, there's been a, well, recently, meaning five or six years ago, there was another death, uh, as a result of LSD and interrogation at Guantanamo Bay, uh, where, where people are still, uh, imprisoned and some obviously innocent, but, uh, uh, Again, LSD was used. It was used against Jose Padillo, who was who was basically drugged to the point where he was in, incoherent. Found guilty by by a U.S. court of engaging in, in terror, uh, terrorism, but at the point that he made it to court, he couldn't even speak, and that was because of the number the number of uh, LSD encounters he had with uh, with various psychologists uh, who were working for the US Army and homeland security. So, no, the chapter, you know, Olson was one chapter, but there's been multiple multiple chapters that have 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 opened up uh, since 1953.
1: Well, Hank, thank you for your 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 dedication to this uh, subject matter and your research, and of course your fine book, a major major tome, uh, over 900 pages. The murder of Frank Olson and the CIA's secret Cold War experiments. Thank you so much, Hank.
2: Okay, thank you very much for having me. I My pleasure. It.
1: Before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up on episode 57 of Conspiracy Unlimited. Before that, if you listen to this podcast on Friday, you know I draw the name of one lucky winner every week, and that winner receives a copy of my Strange Planet CD, either volume 1 or volume 2. If you want to get in on the draw, here's what I need you to do. Rate and review this podcast, grab a screenshot of that, and then email it to me at richardserrett1 at gmail.com, Richardserret. one one at gmail.com don't forget to include your full name and mailing address and then your name goes into the ginormous cheese puffs jar and then be listening to the podcast on friday when i draw a name towards the tail end of the show good luck you know i uh, took last week off from conspiracy unlimited but i still have my weekly radio show the conspiracy show on sunday nights i have another podcast the rock and roll twilight zone i'm hosting coast to coast twice three times a month And I'm homeschooling my twin boys and driving them to tennis and piano and Greek school and so forth. I can't afford to get sick. And being tired is just no excuse. I tell you what I credit for keeping my energy levels up and what prevents me from getting sick. I'm certain it has a lot to do with my Life Extension Mega Green Tea Extract. Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract provides powerful antioxidant effects throughout the body. Green tea contains health-promoting polyphenols, including a powerful antioxidant which has been the subject of extensive scientific research. So why don't you pour on these multiple health benefits for yourself? Green tea is a powerful antioxidant. It supports cell membrane integrity, boosts liver detoxification, enhances immune function, and helps maintain healthy blood cholesterol, LDL and triglyceride levels, and much more. Life Extension's Mega Green Tea Extract is decaffeinated, yet it contains more polyphenols in one capsule than seven cups of green tea. The Chinese have been using green tea for therapeutic purposes since 2000 B.C., More recently, volumes of published scientific findings attest to its multiple health benefits. One capsule a day of mega green tea extract is all you need. Give your body what it needs. Order right now from Life Extension and save 25%. Just go to SmartClickIdea.com. That's SmartClickIdea.com. SmartClickIdea.com. Coming up on episode 57 of Conspiracy Unlimited, The Mysteries of Stonehenge. Cayman Mythwood will be here. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
0: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now.